Cinephiles, audiophiles, ladies and germs, welcome to the Film Cult Podcast. Tonight, we welcome one of the most important figures in underground cinema, someone who helped round out the movement of the cinema of transgression, and one of the world's leading photographers, Richard Kern. Mr. Kern, how are things? Great. I'm enjoying myself during the lockdown. Are you uh, staying busy still? Yeah, things got busier for some reason. I um, have been enjoying just having no reason to do anything. It's been great. I, I like it. I, I, I don't look forward to things starting up again. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I don't think I do either. But <laughs> Yeah, it's like we're living in a zombie movie and, you know, if if we go outside, something bad's going to happen. <laughs> well, I like to take you way back. Growing up with a newspaper man as your father, what was that style of work ethic installed in you? I think, I think the my work ethic came from um, my father w- was broke and never gave me any money, so I always had jobs from the time I was about eight or something, and I. I had to buy every, anything I wanted. So I, if I wanted books, you know, if I wanted anything, I had to make the money. And I don't know. I think I just had a normal work ethic, if anything. Maybe it, when I was doing the films and things like that, I had more of a, a kind of young man's kind of, or young young person, let's say, young person's drive to do something that I don't necessarily have anymore. <laughs> Well, who were some of the formative artists that helped shape who you would become as an artist yourself? I, um, I mean, I was a movie head. I mean, I grew up in a small town, you know, in the fifties and sixties. So it was one movie theater. It was, it was very much like last picture show, but, uh, I can remember seeing this movie, um, Jesus. Ashes and Diamonds. I don't know if you know that. A Polish director who's a master of Polish cinema. I can't pronounce his name, so I'm not going to try, but Ashes and Diamonds came on the late, late show. And and at the end, uh, the hero dies. And I was like, what? This this never happens, you know, in the movies. I I vividly remember that. It was like... uh, it was like in the '60s, they would put anything that was remotely spy featured on because James Bond was so big. Mm-hmm. Um, but seeing that kind of stuff, um, just this hunger for movies, um, I vividly remember wanting to see Blow Up, and my parents wouldn't let me. And that later became one of my favorite films. Uh, but as, as far as artists goes, um, where I grew up. You know, there was art was like the only thing I'd ever heard of about art was Andy Warhol was on the cover of Life magazine. Uh, Jackson Pollock, too, but I don't even I don't remember that. Then in um, in college, I switched from philosophy to art and there was a small library there. And I started reading about uh, Chris Burden and he was that was a huge influence. But the other influences were mostly film film people and some photography people, too. So how close would you... Was your town somewhere that had a lot of magazines that you could pick up? Did you have to subscribe? 
Was there a closer town or a city that you would travel to all the time to get your art fix? No, there was, um, it was, it depends on how you define art, but like I worked in a music store. Well, I worked in a store that sold, there was a lake nearby, they sold boats, they sold outboard motors, they sold guitars, they sold TVs, and they sold records. And I can remember ordering uh, David Bowie and Ziggy Stardust, and when it came, just like, oh, this is great. Uh, so it was, it was it was really difficult to get stuff. Um, there was a, a town nearby that we would hitchhike to when I was in high school. We'd skip school and hitchhike there because they had a uh, record store, like a real record store that had, you know, whatever was out. And we would go there. To see, they had, you know, more than one movie theater. They had a mall. That's what it was. <laughs> they had a mall. Uh, this was in North Carolina. Um, and the town I would hitchhike to is called Rocky Mount. Uh, but no, it was it was it was college before I could get my fix, and in college I um, still couldn't really get it there. I mean, there's a tiny art library, maybe a, you know a ten by twelve room, and one of the earliest um, exposures I had was to this magazine called Art Light that came out of New York, and it was uh, it looked like a fanzine. Um, Printed on newsprint. One of the editors was this guy Walter Robinson, who's a great painter. Uh, but they ran. I, I started making fanzines, and they ran. They ran an ad, not an ad. They did a review of my first fanzine, and this is in this New York art magazine. So I started getting like letters from all over the place. Not le- a lot, but you know, I got letters from other places that um, that kind of opened things up. But in, as far as um, other fixes, I mean, for movie fixes, they had a film committee, you know, the student union that was in charge of selecting three films each week to uh, be shown on campus. So I, I managed to become the head of that. It was only one person, me. <laughs> so I got to pick whatever I wanted. So I bought the Warhol films down. I bought... Uh, I could just bring whatever I wanted, you know, mm-hmm. and that was really great. That was, that was, so it's like having, I had to order movies <laughs> to see them. Um, one of the, my biggest thrills was sitting around in my little film office, looking at the old Janus catalogs going like, God, oh, this movie looks really good because, you know, there was no way to see that stuff back then. Mm-hmm. Well, when you were first starting the designs for the heroin addict, was this something that you wanted for your own retrospective and to use almost as a diary? Or did you feel like this was going to go beyond New York's East Village and showcase to the rest of the world what was happening there? <laughs> no, it was nothing so grand, grandiose. It was, <laughs> um, it was just the original um, fanzine was just, uh, well, I'm in a small town. There's nothing to do. Uh, very little to do. There's a couple of movie theaters. Um, I worked in the art department for my work-study job. Uh, There's a tiny museum. So it was just a place to put my stuff, you know, and the stuff of my friends. And, you know, fanzines were becoming um, popular then. This was 76, 77, around then. And I saw a couple of my friends' fanzines, and I was like, ah, this is great. These things are really funny, and they can just say whatever they want. And they get free records, and they get 
into the shows whenever a band plays. And that, that was pretty much everyone's motivation for doing a fan scene. So I started started out doing music, but I switched it over to uh, more arty stuff. You know, my early fo- arty photographs uh, and my own writing and the writing of my friends. Mm-hmm. And also the, the title came from, um, I was super fascinated, you know, and <laughs> back in uh, high school and college with... Um, Velvet Underground and that song, Heroin, you know, that just seemed like, oh, this is so, these guys are the coolest people on earth. They are just so cool. So I call it, it was, it was a magazine for people who were too afraid to do heroin or something like that. I forgot what the <laughs> subtitle was, but it was something along those lines. Uh, but yeah, then uh, that was pretty much the only reason to do it was to, uh, have an outlet on my own stuff. I mean, it, it was, I guess I was, you know, it's all this um, DIY aesthetic going on. I imagine it still does, just in a different format, but it was, um, you know, it's the way lots of people all around the world were getting their information out. And once you got in the circuit, you know, if you somebody would review your magazine or write about something you did, um, you were tied into this, vast underground network that was around the United States for music and films and all kinds of stuff. And that, that lended itself um, really well to the films that I made later, because I had already established this kind of um, network. You know, I made, made the films and just mailed them to the people in my network and um, started my own little tape manufacturing business. Well, did Nick Zed ever come to you while he was coming up with the manifesto for the cinema of transgression? Yeah, he, um, he, Nick, I mean, a lot of people have this, myself included, but you have an eye for new talent. And I didn't think of, think of it this way back then, but I think of it now. Um, and people to work with and people who were doing interesting things. And Nick saw that I was making these movies and that I somehow had, the means to pay for them and he asked me if I wanted to do something with him and that's how we started working together and uh, that film was thrust in me it was part of Manhattan Love Suicides and we talked about uh, cinema transgression but it was completely Nick's idea I, I was only interested in um, you know making more movies at the time and Nick had this idea which was really smart you know that um he said we we have to i'm gonna come up with a name we call it cinema transgression and say it's a film movement and this is the way people will remember it you know people have to have some way to pigeonhole you or they you know they have to have a term to call you or it has to be something you know and I said, sure, whatever. <laughs> and he wrote this manifesto as Ernie Burke. I think, um, I think that's what, if I'm remembering this correctly. And either he published or had it published somewhere else. But it was this whole, I mean, he, he kind of faked the entire thing, you know. Um, afterwards, I mean, now people call, refer to the cinema transgression. And it's, I just wonder about, the surrealist, were they sitting around doing this? Um, were the Dadas doing this? Um, you know, I just wonder about that. <laughs> but it, it, 
I'm really glad he did it because it really um, helped out in later years. He thought um, he went around and found every person who was making a film at the time and pretty much just lumped them in so it looked like there was this whole group of people working at the same time, but it was it was mainly about five or six of us, I guess, that were consistently doing stuff. There was Tessa Hughes Freeland. There was uh, uh, was Nick. There was Cassandra Stark made some films. Um, Tommy Turner, he was the other one. Well, would you um, say that the spirit and the manifesto was lived on, or is the shock factor of cinema gone? Hmm. Depends on what kind of shock you're talking about, but um, I mean, I'm still shocked sometimes. I gotta say, um, but it comes in places where you least expect it. I mean, I just watched the last Rambo movie. In the last twenty minutes, I was like, "Holy cow! This is the most violent movie I've ever seen," <laughs> um, and I was just laughing my head off. But um, I'm trying to—I'm shocked in different ways now. I think, um, and I imagine. It's hard to make any kind of judgment about contemporary cinema because uh, there's so much of it. Just like everything else, there's so much of everything. What's the filmmaker who made Dogtooth and um, Killing of a Sacred Deer and Yorgos? And I'm, I'm going to mess up his last name, but his first yeah. name is Yorgos. Yeah, he's. He's shocking, but in a different way. Like, Dog Tooth is a pretty great movie, i got to say. I mean, I can think of a million different movies like this, but um, he's somebody that stands out as being consistently surprising. Do you feel like there's recent films that have kept the, the cinema transgression spirit alive? I'm sure there are, but I haven't... Um, I mean, I'd have to be a YouTube head, you know? Yeah. And because I'm, I'm sure there's stuff on there that is really out there or Vimeo, you know, but like I say, there's too much stuff. I'm sure you've had the experience where you're on Amazon Prime or Netflix or something and a movie has, you know, five stars and you watch it and you realize it's an indie feature and all the votes were probably put in by people in the cast and crew, you know? <laughs> um, but, but, uh, yeah, I just, I just don't know. I, um, suppose some of that stuff would be on Instagram, but boy, I don't know. Well, when, it has to be. Well, when artists like Gaspar Noé and Lars von Trier are paying homage to you and yeah. your works, do you appreciate how much impact your work has had on all facets of art? You think they did? To me, if I'm watching something like Enter the Void, I see so much of your early work in that. And just mm. and and even with the Dogma ninety five stuff when Lars was starting that and the manifesto taking from what you and you and Nick were doing, I see a lot of those guys paying homage to you constantly. Well that's interesting. Um I would like that would be great to <laughs> I know Gaspar and I know he's a fan of the films. Um after I got clean and um 88, 89, around then. I was in um, Copenhagen a lot because they had this thing called the, I think it was the Film and Video Workshop or the Danish Danish Film Institute. And they would give, they would give anybody who could, who would write a script, they were government funded, they would give them money and equipment to make a film. And, and 
the woman who always brought me to that festival, she was she was in charge of the festival for quite a few years. Um, she went on to become Von Tier's producer, one of his producers. And I, I do know the guy who made Drive. I can't remember his name. Nicholas uh, Winding Refn. Yeah. Yeah, he's meant, he mentioned the evil cameraman in a couple of interviews I saw. And and so I imagine he was there at the same time, too. Because well, you're in a place like Copenhagen where there's nothing to do again. And, and uh, they have these film festivals all the time. And, yeah, I, I was there a lot. They even offered me money to make, um, to make a feature. And I just never got around to it. <laughs> Well, I would even say that Nicholas Winding Refn on his latest work, Too Old to Die Young, there is a lot of stuff there. Even from your work mm. in Nazi, there's you can see the, the underlying thread of the cinema of transgression movement all throughout his work as well, especially in his new series. But Oh, I have to watch it. My son told me that was really good. <laughs> <laughs> Well, when you were working with notable musicians and artists around your films, did you feel like it would be an easy transition to just start making those films into music videos? Or was it kind of just thrown into your lap through Lydia Lunch's association with Sonic Youth? That, that was it exactly. Um, uh, Sonic Youth already had this, already had the video uh, pretty much, um, well, maybe 75% of it because they were working with this director, Judith Berry, and they asked me to come on just to do the gore effects for the um, Manson murder. Uh, it was supposed to be like the Manson murders. I said, well, okay, I'll do that if I can make my own version of um, the video. And then it, you know, so there's two versions out there. Hers is uh, pretty different than mine. Um but yeah, all that stuff, and it, all the music videos are, I mean, I briefly had a career as a movie video director, um, and when people, when you could get paid for making a music video, and but I, I rarely made much money. The only one I made any money on was uh, Marilyn Manson's Lunchbox. Yeah, it, it just seemed like a, a kind of a natural extension of things like uh, Submit to Me and submit to me now those were very much music driven but those films were made uh, submit to me was made as a backdrop for uh, Jim Thurwell or Fetus you know or Wiseblood you know one of of his you know he had many names but uh, they would be projected behind him while we were I toured with him a few times and that would be projected behind him so when it says destroy and all that stuff, that was just pulling words out of his songs, although they were my, you know, words to live by <laughs> back then. <laughs> destroy everything. <laughs> well, was it Kim Gordon that then brought you on to into the Breeders' Divine Hammer video? And what was it like doing that as a co-directing project with not only Kim, but with Spike Jones as well? Well, <laughs> that was another one where... Um, I mean, the story as it was told to me was the breeders made this video with Spike Jones. They don't like it. They said it's too polished. They want something more messed up. <laughs> and Kim said, can you come over? Can we come over to your house and shoot shoot some footage? And uh, you shoot 
her rolling around like you shoot girls. I guess this was around the time of New York Girls. To me, the Breeders were this humongous band, you know. I didn't even know Spike Jones was involved. I didn't know anything about it. I just said, well, here's, here's some film. We'll just shoot this. Take, it took like two hours. And I lit her the same way I lit the girls from New York Girls. And that's pretty much it. The one regret I have is Kim said, I'll give you an Eames chair if you want for the chair that got broken. It's really nice. And I didn't take it because I didn't know who Eames was at the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, was it Marilyn Manson that approached you for the Lunchbox video? Or how did that relationship start? And how did that video come to be? I knew a woman who worked for their PR company. And she knew my, she was a fan of the films. I think she was about 21 or 22. Manson back then was, um, you know, young and yeah, he was Manson. But he knew the, um, he said, I have a roller rink in mind. I want to shoot in in Florida. He, it, the whole concept was his, uh, of the roller rink. He wanted the band to be playing in a roller rink. He said, there's a roller rink right near where I grew up. And we have thousands of fans where I grew up. Like thousands, and if we just make an announcement, the place will be packed. And if you watch that video, like 20 people showed up. <laughs> but, um, and I threw in the references to um, Taxi Driver and stuff like that. There's some Taxi Driver references in there. And he wanted specifically to have himself painting his lips uh, with all messed up lipstick, like Long Leg does in. Um, I guess it's submit to me. Anyway, that was that was a fun project. And then, then he asked me to go on tour with him to make a tour video. And I, I bought the tickets. But um, I was set to go, and his management said, you're not going on this tour. Because in addition to doing the video, um, Manson asked me to shoot him with a model, having sex with a model. So... Um, after one of his shows, he was staying in a hotel in Times Square, and there was this girl I was working with who was up for anything. And I don't think they they, they didn't have sex, but we just faked this really violent um, sex scene shoot. And those fo photos are very funny, but that really upset his um, management because I had model releases and all that stuff. But, you know, all that's in the past. Well, after you stopped making music videos in the 90s, what brought you back to that world in 2011? Oh, um, well, 2010, actually. I, um, I'd been going to Toronto. to I'd had a show in Toronto, a photo show. The band that played, you know, I it was a photo show. Like, sometimes if you have shows, like, you have no idea what you're getting into. And... A guy wrote me and said, I want to organize a photo show for you. I'll organize some shoots. And it's in Toronto. I'll pay for your trip, everything. And I had no idea about the Toronto scene. I um, called up uh, Bruce LaBruce and he said, oh, yeah, he's cool. That guy's cool. Uh, he means well. He said that. And I should have, <laughs> I didn't get what that meant. But um, the show ended up being in a, in a, a loft he said, this band wants to play at the party. And it was this band, Dentata. Dentata, yeah, that's what they call it. 
And I thought, um, wow, this band is great. And look at their fans. This is really fun. Maybe I'll do a video with them. And they had a song that was one minute long. And that's my favorite kind of video, you know, a one-minute song. <laughs> <laughs> you know. um, so I went back up there and, and did that video. And, you know, it was just fun to do it. I just wanted to see if I could still do it. I hadn't made an actual film in so long. I, I really dropped out of everything for quite a while there as far as filmmaking and a side note um, to that whole experience was the loft the guy who had the loft his girlfriend was Petra Collins the photographer and she was 17 and uh, 17 or 18 and we got along really well she told me she was a photographer and so she would assist me on um, I went up there two or three times to shoot she would always assist me and one time she booked all the models for me. She helped on the video. She was nice on that video. And then she went on to become a very successful photographer. I've read there was a project proposed with Gigi Allen at one point. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Um, I was going to make a re, you know, a remake, <laughs> just like in Hollywood, of, my, <laughs> of, of the most liked film aside from Fingered, which was um, You Kill Me First. And I was going to have Gigi play the dad. Kimber Fowler was going to play the mom. And the girl who turned Manson on to myself, she was going to play their kid. And she had a friend who looked exactly like her, a boy. He was going to play the son. And it was going to be, I was like, okay, I'm going to top that movie 10 times over. And Gigi was up for anything, so it was going to be uh, a lot of fisting and all kinds of crap, uh, incest and all that stuff. And um, and then he OD'd, you know. <laughs> he OD'd right after, um, right around the time we were supposed to do it. Um, but Kimber, was, everybody was up for anything, and I think it would have been a fun project, but it didn't happen. The decline and fall of the Roman Empire or should I say action, <laughs> what, led <you> to, <laughs> what led you to work with Tatchin, and how did that whole book come about? Action was, um, well, I'd, I'd had all these books with Tatchin. I'd had um, New York Girls, Model Release, I think, yeah, that was it for a while. The editor of Tatchin, well, in the meantime, I had started, I'd gone from music videos, while I was making a music video, the um, publisher for uh, the, uh, I'm sorry, I'm getting tongue-tied. The editor at Larry Flint Publications, this guy, Alan McDonald, he called me up and said, um, I heard you shoot a lot of uh, youngish girls that look really natural, and we need, we're starting a new magazine called Barely Legal, and we'll give you $2,000 for 10 photos. Would you do that? And I said, yes. <laughs> Because the music video I was working on at the time, I was making $800 for, you know, like weeks of work. Um, so he said, you can shoot other stuff if you want. And I got really sidetracked for like five years shooting for these magazines. But it was um, it was just such insanely good money to just, you know, you shoot for three hours and you can make anywhere from, I don't know, five to $10,000. But it really sidetracked my career because I got... I started seeing things through these weird porno eyes. <laughs> uh, but 
when I'd have these other books published, I well, basically, I could work for like one week a month in L.A., and then I could have enough money to do whatever I wanted for the other three weeks. Uh, and then I was, you know, shooting my other stuff. But the other stuff got all, like I say, kind of pornified during that period. But I was still uh, publishing some other books. And Diane Hansen was one of the editors at this magazine called Tight. Or she, she was the editor. She did Tight. She did Jugs. She did Leg Show. Uh, and then a few gay magazines. And I shot for all of them. She got hired by Tashin to be their, what he called his sexy books editor. And she knew that I just had this giant closet filled with porn shoots, or girly shoots, I should call them. Porn shoots to me are like, you know, people having sex. But these are just girls laying around with their clothes off, uh, showing their private parts. Anyway, she said, let me just go through that. I think you probably have a good book in there. And I said, yeah, whatever. You know, it was a it was a paycheck. And she came over, pulled out a ton of photos. And ironically, that was my most successful book, I think. Um, because it was the dirtiest. It was so dirty. But it was also a lot of, you know, Diane's editing. She, she really knows... Any Tashin book that has nudity, she did Terry World. She did every, you know, anything that she did those, uh, the big book of breasts, the big book of dicks or whatever it's called. She did all those sex books, all their gay books, everything. Uh, that's how that book came about. <laughs> it's just all, all stuff from porn shoots. Well, was it important for you to have someone like Thurston Moore do the music for extra action? Oh boy, that was funny. Um, I asked Thurston if he could give me some music to use for this DVD, and they were giving me um, $10,000 for the DVD, you know, and I said that they'll give you 1000 for the music. So he just gave me some throwaway bits. <laughs> I heard uh, later he was, he was really shocked when he saw what the film was. I mean, really shocked that... His music's there to girls masturbating and stuff. It just uh, really shocked him. But he did give me music for the next one, you know, for, um, what was it called? Extra Shot. Yeah, the one that came with uh, Shot by Gun. Can you tell me a little bit about the Submit to Me-like film that was originally intended to be a part of a Tashin book? Hmm. Well, it, it kind of... It kind of was, uh, well, no, it wasn't. There was a movie called, um, it, just for a lack of a better name, it was called Strip For Me Now, and it was all through the um, the naked girl stuff. I was shooting, uh, I still had a Super 8 camera, and I would shoot, just like I always did, I'd shoot, you know, five different formats every time I shot something, and one of the formats during that period was Super 8, and... Um, the Super 8 stuff would just be girls rolling around. It's mostly um, during model release and New York Girls. Um, and it's about, I guess, let's see, it's probably, I probably have an hour, hour and a half worth of footage, maybe two hours. Uh, but all in little three-minute rolls, you know, like two-and-a-half-minute rolls, like Super 8 was. And I just never, never got around to putting it out. Um, that's still just sitting in the closet. Uh, some of this, that stuff 
I also would set up a video camera in the corner, and that stuff got edited into a maybe an hour-long movie that um, played in some of the shows I had, just like in a back room. And, you know, it, it wasn't, um, I don't think it was that dirty, I can't say, but uh, anyway, I, I never finished that film. It's just sitting in the drawer. I, I put a couple of things from it on my old Instagram account. But, um, yeah. Hey, maybe I should do something with that. <laughs> well, when, <laughs> when you were shooting for Skin Magazines and for uh, Flint Publications, was it imperative that you kept this work artistic or, and push that art form further instead of just falling down that pornography path? Um, I would say... No, that was work. That was that was hack work. Um, although, if I had a girl there, I would try to get something that I could use for myself. You know, and there's there's stuff in all these different books that the the books that you know I liked, <laughs> um, the books that weren't so porny that uh, came from women that were in some of those shoots, but. Some of the magazines um, that I worked for with Diane, like Jugs, like it was really hard not to make the shoots funny because Jugs is a super white trash magazine. And also, <laughs> I mean, it was hard to keep the jokes out, you know, and uh, not just for Jugs, but some of the other, some of the other magazines. Uh, but Diane finally said, look, Richard, people are supposed to be able to masturbate to this not last, you know, <laughs> so don't make it so funny, you know, uh, and then I just, I just put my head down and went to work, but some of the other, uh, people I knew that were doing their work at the time, like, like one woman I worked with, uh, quite a bit, she ran Taboo Magazine, Cynthia Patterson, she had, um, she had this humongous scrapbook, and it was just poses, you know. It was just like, okay, let's do this pose. Just you know, flipping through it. It's kind of like a what do they call that in an advertising office when uh, inspiration board or something. Uh, but it was like that. You just knew that um, at a certain point. I just knew, okay, we need this pose, this pose. They start with their clothes on, and this happens, this happens, this happens, and by the end, this happens, you know. And that's usually a spread shot. Um, one thing that happened a few years ago was some fan of mine wrote me and said, I have collected every single shoot, I've collected and cataloged every single shoot you ever did that was in a magazine. And since everything is digital now, I don't need this anymore. Would you like it? And he sent me these two <laughs> or three, three really nicely cataloged um, portfolios oh, was amazing um of all my stuff cut out of magazines and yeah it was nice but yeah those days are done the internet killed that business too you know, magazines you could get paid five thousand for became magazines that you could get like 500 for if you could get paid you know um i still lfp apparently still pays people uh, really well but that's, I think that's the only one that does. I imagine Playboy. I shot for Playboy a couple of times. I don't have any idea if they paid well. But um, And back in the early days, 
I would sell sets to Penthouse Online. They they actually paid really well for like individual photos, and it was um, it was odd because I went to Penthouse and I was like, wow, Penthouse. I've looked at this magazine since I was like ten years old in the headquarters and this was at the end you know and they had a whole floor of this building uh in new york and i went there to meet and i'm just walking through this whole place and all the desks were empty <laughs> i mean it was huge and there's no de- nobody working and they finally get back to this back room and there was a couple of people still working you know that was before guccione lost everything anyhow i'm digressing I'm digressing in the porn world. <laughs> well, would you say that a lot of your work, even as raw as it can be sometimes, is more anti-pornography than anything else? I've been called, I get called, first I was called a fetish photographer, and then I was called a erotic photographer, and I see that a lot, um, or erotic filmmaker, or the erotic film fingered. <laughs> and all that stuff was anti. I mean, I definitely... When I was doing that hack work, I mean, I suppose that would be erotic, but to me, it didn't. It didn't seem that at all. It just seemed like photos. Um, but fingered. The, one of the main points of fingered was to, do, and a, a lot of my old films was just to make people feel really weird about sex. You know, to make them um, to be like anti whatever you're seeing in the movies. You know, these romantic scenes where people are. You know, having this like well lit sex, you know, that, with a candle behind them that shows through right before they kiss, it's the candle lights right in their face, that kind of stuff. Um, because in my experience, I had never had a relationship where that was the case. You know, where it was it was always like relationships were always like full of fights and and miscommunication and trust issues and cheating and all kinds of stuff. And that's, I mean, Fingered was was geared to make it just look really, sex be really nasty. But then people would write me letters and say, I just watched Fingered with my girlfriend and we had crazy sex after. But I guess it's, I don't know. That was another time, I guess. I don't know what kind of effect that kind of stuff has these days. I, I, I can say I never watch a movie now and think, wow, I got to have sex now. That just doesn't seem possible. (laughs) Well, looking back at Manhattan Love Suicide series, was this your subconscious way of doing Shakespeare for the underground? Or did you have other intentions (laughs) completely? No, that was another relationship movie. (laughs) It was just four different kinds of relationships and uh, all of them uh, ending up, I think, straw dogs, the whole joke was this guy, one guy is obsessed with the other you know obsessive love where you're just obsessed with somebody and then they're not interested in you until you're gone you know which I can relate to and I think uh, thrusting me was really obvious and it's just a guy fucking himself um, he, he's a man and a woman anyway they were all like oddball relations oh which is called uh the last one, I hate you now, is um, when your partner starts doing everything you do to be like you. And just, that was kind of a thing. It was all stuff I kind of experienced, I guess. 
Well, to me, Nazi is a film that really captured the essence of underground cinema of the 1970s. Was this a conscious decision, or did films like The Night Porter and Ilsa even play a role in what you were originally intending? <laughs> Let's see. Ilsa, Ilsa, I never watched the whole movie. Uh, but uh, back then, Nazi, um, you know, the punk days, Nazi imagery was used all the time for shock value because there's nothing more shocking than seeing a swastika. But to me, it was, I mean, the whole point of that movie was America's fascist. <laughs> That's all it was about. Less than a minute, I guess. It was, uh, you know, sex and fascism. <laughs> I mean, I got a giant American flag in back of it. And I, I have that Nazi joke in there, um, and what is it? Evil cameraman, like the um, girl pulls my pants open, and I've got a giant swastika tattooed above my dick. Like, I mean, how how fascist can you get? But then, you know, of course, everybody gets it. Uh, like men with their boners being <laughs> entirely, you know, like domineering and to take over the whole world, that kind of stuff. I want to take over the world with my dick. <laughs> but um, people totally misinterpreted it. This, this one um, one guy who had brought me to Greece to show films years ago, he started sending me all this Nazi stuff, like links to Nazi speeches <laughs> and like all kinds of stuff. And I said, man, what the... F- why are almost cursed? Why are you sending me all this stuff? And he said, "Because you're you're into this, aren't you? Because of your Nazi film." And I said, "No, you missed the whole point." <laughs> but uh, but I will watch a movie that has Nazis in it. I'll watch that anytime. Like Glorious Bastards is so great. Any movie that has all that crap in it. Do you feel like Nazi is more relevant now than even when you made it? I mean, I don't think like that, but I suppose you could, it could could be. I mean, it definitely seems to be. Just because of the current I mean, climate, I'm a I guess. Super, well, I'm, I'm a super conspiracy theorist, so, you know, about the deep state and all that stuff. So, and I would say, I, I don't know if it's relevant now, but it, it definitely seems <laughs> more fascistic, especially right now. I mean, the whole idea of being in forced lockdown which is totally illegal. There's no laws. <laughs> you know, it's just by government decree. <laughs> that, that's, that, by definition, is uh, fascist, uh, kind of a fascist. But, you know, I don't want to be too political anymore. Why did you end your filmmaking career at the time without ever making a full-fledged feature? Oh, um, drugs. <laughs> I got so messed up on drugs. And... Um, Oh, well, that was the first time I ended it. But then when I got off drugs, I came back. I, um, 1987, I think um, I put the end on the end of Submit to Me Now, and that was the end of that period. Then I got clean and um, made Evil Cameraman. I did actually try to get a feature going. I, I, I was going to make a feature about three years ago, and we wrote it. I interviewed all these models that I had worked with for about two years. And then I took one of the things I would always ask them was their worst experience. I ask them all kinds of stuff. And then I wrote a script with a friend of mine, 
she wrote, I mean, she actually wrote it, a woman in L.A., and we had a producer, and we were raising, we had a certain amount of seed money. The guy from Endoscene, uh, that band that I made a music video for, he decided he wanted to get in the film business. He gave us money. Uh, we spent it, and it just never happened. And then the Me Too era happened. The producer told me that um, this movie is going to be a hard sell anyway, because it was it was all it was all about all these different women that live in New York, you know, and they were all people on the uh, in the underground economy, let's say, that um, had crappy jobs, one sold pot, you know. It was, it was basically just a, it was all true stuff about these girls, you know, and I had a lot of them playing the parts. And the producer said, this is going to be really hard to sell um, these days. This is before me, too. He said, because people are going to see this. They're not going to see it for what it is. They're just going to see the shock of how some of the stuff they say, things like that. You know, people would read the script and they would either say, you know, women would read it and either say, this is, you really nailed it. Um, Not me, but the writer. Or they would say, why did you show women in such a bad light? It would be, you know, one way or the other, you know, the two poles. You know, the only guys in it were total assholes, you know, like total scumbags. All the relationships were fucked up as usual. And the producer, um, I can't think of his name right now, but he's he's done a lot of indie movies. Like he did Juno um, and he he knew everybody in the business. So I was pretty optimistic, but he said, like I say, he said, there's going to be a really hard sell. And then uh, the Me Too era happened, and it's just like impossible. You know, forget it. No way is a guy, a movie made by a guy about young women going to fly these days. And also just, I just got so tired of people blowing smoke up my butt about um, paying for the film. I just said, okay. I get the message. And after about two and a half years, I quit. But I talk to people like, you know, I just don't have that stamina that I guess people need for the um, for the film business. Like I talked to Gaspar and one of those films, I can't remember. He said, I've been trying to make that film. Maybe that was Enter the Void. I can't remember. Um, he said, I've been trying to make that film since I started, you know. Like, I've been trying to get that made for 20 years, and I finally got it made. And I just don't have that kind of stamina. Well, how did your relationship with Vice come to be? And is it refreshing to see such a young audience getting to discover your work? Yeah, they, that was, um, I was I was thrilled when I got the call to work with them. Because I'd been a big fan of it, of the magazine. Not a huge fan, but I knew it was a magazine out there that the young people read. And they pretty much would let me do whatever I wanted, you know, any kind of joke shoot I could think of, they would they would go for it. Yeah, then, then the climate there changed too, and it um, turned things around. But a lot of people that knew my work from Vice or anywhere else would have no idea about the films. Um, in fact, I, I was shooting a, a shoot for Vice, and we are in a place where we had to stay overnight. And there was this film called, um, what's that film about New York filmmakers? 
about the no wave scene. It was a documentary. Well, I'm really bad with blank, blank city. Yeah, yeah, that one. And we're sitting at the dinner table, and this one of the models looks at me and says, "Are you that guy that made those films?" And I said, "Yeah." <laughs> and it, it was people have no no clue. In fact, um, some of the gal it's, it works that way in the world. Like they'll only know one aspect of what you do. Uh, I had um, when I was showing a lot in galleries. A dealer told me he gave my old films to a collector who'd bought all this work of mine. And the guy watched, this is a hardcore collection, he watched the films and he sent back everything he bought <laughs> to the gallery and said, I want nothing to do with this. But it's um, it's just, uh, just another aspect of it. I know that your archive is amazing. Is it an important factor for you to keep the preservation of your works to the highest degree possible with the continued high definition upgrades? Mm, no, that was that came about um, because well, okay, those old films set in my closet were just sitting in my closet. They were packed nicely, just sitting in the closet, and I knew that film deteriorates over a period of time. And the Warhol Foundation had given anthology films a um, grant to do to preserve some films and uh, they asked if they could do two of mine and uh, they gave me a grant so I'd been wanting to do this anyway but it was a financial thing uh, so they did You Kill Me First and it was so ridiculous the grant took so long like their their way of preserving it was to blow it up to 16 you know which is just useless, you know, like who shows 16 films? And I mean, I have the 16, I have a copy of it sitting in my, in my file cabinet, but it's, it's pretty useless. And I said, can video is the way to go. I had just seen this show at MoMA where they had restored all of these Warhol portraits. Those, um, those things where you just put a camera on somebody's face, like Lou Reed or, Nico, all these people, and the way MoMA had it showing was uh, just fantastic. You walked in this long room, and these, up on each side of the room was you know, these individual portraits, and you could just walk through them. But they were all restored, you know, like to 1080p from uh, 16. But the difference was when Warhol made them, if it was shown like that, you'd hear this like clank, 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 clank of a million projectors. On loops, and uh, this gave it a whole nother quality. Walking through this room, and this, this really eerie feeling of walking through all these dead people, uh, or soon to be dead people, uh, in the prime of their life, just like staring at the camera was such a great thing. And I thought, I'm just gonna, you know, I'm gonna blow my stuff up, and uh, well, blow it up from Super 8 to what was high def at the time. Uh, so I just think, can I have the money, and I'm just going to use that towards blowing every, remastering everything from the old films. And, and then I knew that, okay, the films can deteriorate, but I will still have this high-quality thing. And that became, um, I mean, it costs way more than the grant, but it became like a, it was really useful that I did it. I did it in several stages, and even the stuff that's on the 
Blu-ray DVD that's out there, that's still not the best quality because I, I went and had a colorist go through after that and do just really pump everything up. It looks amazing now. But uh, it was it was convenient. It was great that I did it because um, MoMA bought about 17 of the films. They wanted they wanted prints of uh, 17 films for the collection. I, I said, well, I already have the restored HD version of all these films. And whenever somebody sells them a film, the big thing is, you know, they, they have to count in the restoration costs. I said, I've already done all that. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it made it a really good package for them and for me. Anyway, so when I, when I screen the stuff now, it's like in, in uh, Manhattan Love Suicides, for example, and Stray Dogs, when, when his... There's a scene where his neck, he's, he gets so upset that his neck explodes, a big chunk flies out of his neck. Like you can see the, uh, you can see the wire really clear, but in the, old, in the old versions, you couldn't really see that stuff. Well, do you prefer the freedom that digital has, or did the old days of shooting on celluloid make it more exciting for you? Well, that's a hard question. Um, I mean, I love video. It's great. Um, and I just recently shot some film for a job and it was that was really fun because I couldn't you know when you're, when you're doing that I, if you haven't done it for a long time you're constantly looking at the back of your camera to see what the digital image is but it's a film camera and it's not there but uh, that was really fun and I like the uncertainty of it that's a cliche but that's true but yeah I, 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 I like digital quite a bit it's just so much fun to be able to instantly see things although you know, people who have an archive now, my, my digital archive is just going to be some Western digital hard drives. And uh, all that film stuff, like I've had a few shows with just Polaroids from back then, all these Polaroids I was just taking nonstop. Those became a nice thing to have for, for me now, you know. And I tried to uh, shoot a job on the new Polaroid film. And it's, it's such crap. It's such crap. I just, I had to abandon the idea. It's just, a lot of that technology is gone. You know, it's not coming back and there's no way to, no way to duplicate it. I suppose you can kind of look, make it look like that in Photoshop. But anyway, I, I love digital. I love film. Right before the um, lockdown, I bought a, a mirrorless camera. A nice little mirrorless camera that shoots 4K and all that stuff. A little tiny Fuji, you know, and that's great. Well, finally, is there an image in your head that you've tried to get through in your art, but it still hasn't come to fruition? Mm. <laughs> I mean, the first thing. No, I mean, I I can't I can't think of anything off the top of my head. There were always things I was trying to rip off all through my career, only to get angry at people when they ripped off my stuff <laughs> but not too I, I wouldn't get too angry but when I see I see some I see some ad campaigns by people that work for me <laughs> just like whoa this is exactly what we did when you were working for me but yeah I I, uh, I still have a lot of stuff sitting here that I shot never finished you know lots of films <laughs> and lots of uh, photographic stuff and I spent the last couple of years just kind of working on that stuff. There's um, a book I did for this magazine, Numero, um, called 1980, where they 
He said, we really love you all, black and white. Can you, can you give us some images so we can make a book of old stuff, New York in the 80s? And that got me digging through all of this old material because when you shoot photos or anything, you, you shoot and you pull out your good shot and you just put the rest away and never look at it again. So I had, I went back, I've been going back through all that old stuff and, you know, you have different eye. I have different eyes at 65 than I did when I was, you know, 25. And I see, um, there's so much good stuff. Anyway, they use a lot of that stuff in the book. Um, and who knows what I'll do with all this stuff. And the same with the Polaroids. There was so much interest in the Polaroids. I don't know. People love it. People like seeing old stuff, I guess. Well, thank you so much, Richard. The impact your work has had on all facets of art is something truly outstanding. And it means a lot that you could take the time to chat with me today. Well, thanks for those kind words. I doubt it, though. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't think that you understand how much of an impact you've had on film, music, photography, art, it doesn't matter. I, 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 think, I think your influence runs very deep. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm standing one foot off the ground now. <laughs> <I'm> floating. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Keep up with all things Richard Kern over at richardkern.com. And this concludes our broadcast day.